I'm starting to fall in love with baseball. The pace of the game, the mechanics, but more importantly, the storyline of the game. That at any given moment, what looks like a safe three-run lead can quickly disappear with a few bad pitches or a few good at-bats. It kind of works as a metaphor for life sometimes, doesn't it? Things happen and they just get out of our control. I don't know if you remember it, but there was this season when the Toronto Blue Jays were pushing their chips in to make a run in the playoffs. You might remember it. It was that infamous postseason with that wild seventh inning and the most iconic bat flip in history. A piece of modern art. Now, for me, this was the season that I really started to pay attention to baseball, as I'm sure it did for a lot of fans. So what I did is I began researching all of the players. And one of the players pitching in that series was R.A. Dickey, a former Cy Young winner, which is the award for best pitcher, and who happened to be the first knuckleballer to win that award. And as I looked at his stats and his career, I stumbled upon his story. R.A. Dickey became a follower of Jesus at the age of 13. But his story leading up to that moment and the years that followed were marked by one gut-wrenching word and the wall that we're going to look at today. And that word is shame. You see, at the age of eight, Dickey had been sexually abused multiple times by a female babysitter. And he was also raped by a male stranger. When recounting these horrific moments in his life, he said that he felt less than human, less than an ant. The next curveball in his story was getting drafted in the first round of the MLB draft by the Texas Rangers. Exciting, excited, he jumped on a plane for a medical and to sign an $800,000 contract, only to discover from doctors that he was born with a missing ligament in his right elbow. How he could pitch without it was a total mystery. The result of this discovery was that the team withdrew the contract. Feelings like, you're worthless, you're broken, rose to the surface. The feeling of shame. Now, toiling in the minors, Dickey reinvented himself as a knuckleball pitcher. Now, if you don't know what a knuckleball is, it's a pitch with very little spin and is really hard to control. But through incredibly hard work, he reinvented himself and Dickey's career began to trend upwards. And finally, he was given his first MLB start. Great, you would think. But in that game, Dickey goes on to set a modern day record for most home runs given up in a game with six and then is promptly cut from the roster. The feeling of inadequacy crept back up to the surface. I'm not good enough. I'm worthless. This is the refrain of shame. Shame researcher Brene Brown puts it like this. Shame drives two big tapes or stories. You are never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, the other is, who do you think you are? This morning, I want us to discuss a very important wall, and that wall is shame. Ari Dickey's story uses language that we adopt in our own versions of our story with shame. 
I promise you that his story has an incredibly pro- powerful and profound redemptive arc to it, and I highly recommend looking into it. But for now, what I find compelling from his story is that it shows the powerful wall that shame can become in our lives. Shame is the wall that keeps us from stepping into relationship with others. It keeps us from taking risks or trying new things. And it keeps us from entering into the possibilities that God has for us. Shame is the wall that's painted with words and phrases that say, you're not good enough. You didn't finish high school. You didn't even do very good in it. You lost another job. No one will hire you now. Your relationship or your marriage is falling apart. No one will ever love you. I know all of the things that happened to you growing up. You better not tell anyone. They'll think you're broken or weak. It's the voice, shame is the voice that every time you log on to social media says, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, skinny enough, talented enough, or rich enough. Shame can be absolutely paralyzing, can't it? It can quickly become a wall that closes in and keeps us locked in and isolated. And as we've looked over for the past two weeks, Walls can cause us to avoid relationships, joys, hopes. They can keep us from entering into vulnerability and community. And so it is with shame. When we feel shame about who we are or what we've done or what's been done to us, we hide, we self-conceal, we never show our true selves, and we become afraid of the fact of, what if they knew who I truly am? When we feel ashamed of who we are or ashamed of something that's happened to us or that we've done, we bury our emotions as far as we can. We feel worthless, not good enough. We become depressed, incredibly anxious. We can find ourselves falling into problematic behaviors or addictions just to escape our shame. Shame researcher and well-known author Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. You can hear and almost see shame building a wall in this language. When we experience shame, these are the thoughts that rattle around in our head, aren't they? We believe that we're flawed or not enough. And as a result of that, we are unworthy of love and belonging. If you're watching this, and I'm really glad that you are, I have no idea what your story is. I have no idea what you've been through, what you're feeling. But what I do know is that on some level, we all experience shame at some time or in some season in our life. Maybe something has happened in your past that you feel ashamed about. Or maybe something that you've done that you feel shame for. Or something that's been done to you, you feel shame. Or maybe you find yourself in that moment right now. Maybe your relationship or your marriage is falling apart and you feel like it's all your fault. And you hear the thoughts that no one will ever love me. Or you look in the mirror and you feel ashamed of the person looking back not pretty enough, smart enough, 
not you fill in the blank enough. And you just feel shame. I am flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. What I love about scripture and Jesus specifically is that he doesn't ignore the real things of life, like shame. He knows the human condition and speaks boldly about it and into it. So today, I want to look at a story that Jesus told as we look at the wall of shame. And it's honestly one of my favorite stories. We find this story in Luke 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus starts the story like this. There was a man who had two sons. Let's stop here for a second. If you've been around the church for a while, or you have any church background, you might know this story. And you might know it so well that you're tempted to jump ahead to the tension and the perceived resolution. But I want to encourage you this morning not to do that. I would encourage you to stay with me because I want to unpack the layers of shame as the story builds. So first, let's get the full context of the chapter where it actually begins. Jesus is sharing a meal within Luke's words, sinners and tax collectors, and some Pharisees who were teachers of the Jewish law and some scribes were nearby as they're having this meal. Seeing Jesus and his dinner guests, they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The reason it's important to start here is to recognize the cultural context of the story because it is crucial for us to understand it. We need to recognize that this is a honor and shame culture. Now, cultural context is important because it acts as the metaphorical 3D glasses that allows us to see details that we might not otherwise see. And these details are actually crucial to understanding the story fully. So for us to fully see the depth of the story of the man with two sons, we need to look at it through the lens of an honor and shame culture. Author Michael Gorman says, simply defined, Honor and shame refers to the ongoing attribution and loss of esteem from one's peers, family, social class, city, and so on. Often the measuring sticks for success were wealth, education, family pedigree, skills, and your political connections. Some measuring sticks that we can relate to in our cultural moment as well. Gorman goes on to say, in this environment, peer pressure is not a negative, or something to be avoided, but is viewed as appropriate and welcomed. So in this kind of culture, what you do and say, and the people you associate with, either elevate your status and your honor, or it decreases it. So in this kind of culture, you would avoid anything that would bring you or your family shame. Now, this isn't the lesson to be learned here, just simply avoid anything that causes shame. I mention this simply to help paint the background or provide us with the 3D glasses to read this story. So in Luke 15, before we even get to the story, we see Jesus doing something that would have been perceived and understood as shameful. He was associating with sinners. And Jesus being a rabbi is having shame heaped on him by his peers. Now, 
We don't often think of Jesus being connected with the Pharisees as a peer, but he would have been seen that way. People addressed him as teacher or rabbi, just like the Pharisees would have been. So before Jesus even begins our story, shame has already shown its ugly head. So layer one, the shameful storyteller. Let's get into the story now. Luke 15, starting at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. So far, so good. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Okay, let's stop here. In this statement, the son is asking for his share of the inheritance while his father is still alive. This, my friends, is a shameful request. This would have been the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what's owed to me. The father would have been incredibly ashamed by this request. He likely would have felt like a pretty flawed and inadequate parent. And the son would have experienced shame too. This would have been strike one against him. Now, after hearing this request, what does the father do? He grants it. And he divided his property between them, his two sons. Again, let's put on our 3D glasses of cultural context. During this cultural moment, the father wouldn't have been flush with cash. He would have had to sell a large portion of his land and his estate to make this request happen, which likely would have meant losing a large portion of agriculture land, which would have made him and his family income. We are only two verses in, and shame is central. And this shame is being brought on by the son to the father. The father has not had anything to do with this. He's not brought it on himself. But sadly in this story, the shame keeps coming. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathers all he had and took a journey to a far country. Now, if you're following along at home, go ahead and circle or underline or highlight a far country. Continuing, Jesus says, and there he squandered. Go ahead, circle or underline squandered. There he squandered his property in reckless living. Yep, you guessed it. Circle or underline reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose and in that country, and he began to be in need. Go ahead and circle or underline in need. He continued, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Go ahead and circle or underline hired. The citizen of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. You can go ahead and underline or circle feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. You can just go ahead and circle and underline that last line as well. Okay, that was a lot to unpack. If you were following at home and you were circling or highlighting, you would have known that. Let's do a quick cultural context, 3D glasses, speed round to pick up some more layers of shame here. Let's start with number one, far country. Now, how does this connect with shame? I'm sure there are a number of you watching this morning thinking of visiting a warm 
tropical far country as soon as you can. But for this story, we have to remember that part of Jewish people's identity was deeply linked to where they were from. Remember what Pastor Paul talked about last week with Samaria. By leaving for the far country, the younger son was rejecting a part of who he is, adding another brick to his wall. Let's look at number two. He squandered. In ideal circumstances, losing one's wealth would have lowered your esteem among their peers. Because remember, wealth was a measuring stick. But here, not only did he acquire his wealth in a shameful manner, but he squandered it in a shameful way as well. He just wasted it. Add just another brick to the wall. And not only does he squander it, but he does so with, number three, reckless living. For Jewish people, lifestyle was everything. That was how they believed they would regain God's blessing and favor. So living recklessly would have gone completely against that on so many levels. The bricks just start piling up and we're only halfway through. Let's pair the next two together. In need and hired. Again, this means he had nothing. Remember, he squandered it. Point number two. He had nothing to the point where he needs to make some money or he's going to starve. Remember, there's a famine going on in this country. This piece here is important to recognize because it's a status and identity piece. He's gone from a son and an heir in his father's house to a hired hand, and not only that, a servant of a foreigner. That would have been a massive blow to his identity. And it gets worse. Let's really focus on this last point. Point five, feed pigs. This is a big one. This is the rock bottom blow. The task of feeding pigs, and not only that, but being in a place where you wanted to eat what they ate. You may think that other than having pigs as dinner guests, this doesn't sound too bad. Well, it, it really is. In Jewish culture, pigs were seen as unclean animals. And I really could nerd out on this one point for a while, explain why that would have been, but we really don't have time for that this morning. The point I want us to take away with this fact about pigs, look at how Jesus structures the story with this line. The son, for all of those who would have been listening to Jesus at this point, would have recognized this as the lowest point you could have possibly imagined. And look, he's longing to be fed with the pods that pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Jesus is building a crescendo here where people who are listening to his story are so angry at him at this point and so frustrated with him that they're happy he's suffering. He's the, in the worst position of life that anyone could have found themselves. And he didn't even have what the pigs had. If, they, if these were rungs on a ladder, he would have been beneath the pigs. His shame would have been absolutely massive. And have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt that you're so flawed, so unworthy of love, so unworthy of belonging, so broken or worthless, so not enough, that to use this image that you felt beneath the pigs, 
or to use Dickie's language, less than an ant? That you had gone as low as you could go? That, my friends, is shame. That's absolutely what shame is. Let's keep going. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Did you catch that? I am no longer worthy. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. Note how his shame is acting like a wall. I am no longer worthy to be your son. I am no longer worthy of your love. I am no longer worthy to belong to you. Treat me like a servant. Notice that he's keeping himself at arm's distance from the father. He's saying, this is what I deserve. I don't deserve to belong. But coming to himself, he goes home. And here's the climax of the story. It's all been leading up to this moment. Verse 20. He got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is an incredible moment. And without context, we might miss it. If we were to put our 3D glasses back on, we would see how significant this moment is. Because we see God's response to shame in comparison to the cultural response. Without cultural context, we might miss it completely. Let's look at the cultural response first. The cultural response to shame For a first century listener, the response that they were waiting for and expecting, they were eagerly waiting to pronounce this character the horrible villain of the story. They were waiting for the aha moment. They were waiting for this failure of a son to finally get what he deserved. They were hoping that the father would come up and he would say, I told you so. You are worthless. You're nothing without me. You're good for nothing. Let me put you to work to repay your debt to the family. But that's not the father's response. The father's response to shame is this. The father is filled with compassion and runs. Now, we have to remember that patriarchs of the family did not run. That would have been considered undignified for an elderly man to run in public. It would have been completely shameful for for him to have lifted his robes, bared his legs, and run. This moment shows the depth of the father's love, the depth of the love that the father had for the son, that he would bear this shame not only to welcome his son, but to protect him from the hostility of the community. The father does not mock or heap more shame or abuse on him. No, 
he throws his arms around him and kisses him. This is how God meets us. Not with more shame, but with grace and compassion. Jesus reveals something amazing to this shame-honor culture. That the Father, the God character in this story, enters our shame and becomes shameful so that we can be honored. And Jesus anticipates the frustration of this truth that his audience would have held, knowing that they couldn't even imagine this kind of grace. And the son, this villainous son, plays right into this cultural moment by putting another brick in his wall of shame, even in this moment of grace. Verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you see the wall? I'm not enough. I'm undeserving. I've messed up too many times to be worthy of love or belonging. Don't we all do this when we feel ashamed? Don't we begin to keep those around us at arm's length? Don't we keep God at arm's length? Let's see how the father responds to his wall. He doesn't let the son put another brick between them and instead pulls the bricks out. He says, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son says, I'm not worthy. And the father says no and reinstates him as a son and an heir. He puts a robe on him, sandals on his feet, a ring on his hand, and throws a massive party. The father proclaims, you are worthy. And this is who God is. When we come home to him, Rather than allow our shame to put another brick between you and him, he pulls them out. He embraces us. He shows us compassion. He welcomes us. He celebrates our returning home. He shows us empathy, not judgment or shame. Brene Brown speaks to this on a psychological level. Empathy is the antidote to shame. If you put shame in a petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And that's what happens when we let the walls of shame grow around us. We hide, we isolate, we keep others at arm's length, and we never feel good enough or worthy enough to come home. And the feelings of shame grow and grow. She goes on. But if you put the same amount in a petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. The two most powerful words when we're in a struggle are, me too. Jesus experienced incredible shame in his life. Remember the shameful storyteller. 
He was mocked for the kinds of people he hung out with. People were disappointed he wasn't the king they were waiting for. He was arrested. He was beaten in public, stripped naked, paraded around and mocked. He was betrayed by his friends. And on the cross, Jesus experienced what Nicky Gumbel says was the height of pain and the depth of shame. This is the beautiful part of the good news. Jesus knows exactly, exactly what you're experiencing. And he pours empathy on your shame. And he invites you home. He invites you into a relationship with him where he desires to transform your perceptions of yourself from I'm not enough, I've made too many mistakes, I'm not worthy of love, to I'm a beloved son or daughter of a loving father. So today, this is the invitation. An invitation to come home. An invitation to be met by your heavenly father to allow him to take your walls down, your wall of shame. Even if it has to be brick by brick, it is an invitation to allow, despite your shame, despite your self-perception, to allow God to hug you, to say, you are my beloved daughter, my beloved son, and I want to celebrate you. And maybe you're thinking that this can't be you. I'm just way too messy, or I've just made way too many mistakes, or I'm really flawed, and I feel worthless. If we look at this story again and we put our 3D glasses of cultural context back on, Jesus has set this whole story to illustrate a person riddled with shame, deep, horrifying to its original audience, shame. But that didn't stop the father from embracing him. He didn't somehow forget or know his shame or his story. It didn't stop the father. In other stories in the New Testament, they talk about groups of people called lepers who would have had a flesh-eating disease and which would also would have meant that no one touched them. Imagine the shame they would have felt. Incredible, incredible shame. But Jesus touched them and he healed them. You see, the reason the scriptures are called literally good news is that they introduce the true character of God. The one who would be shamed on our behalf, who would run to you in all your shame to embrace you, to hug you, to love you. That is the good news. That God loves you despite any shame you hold. And he wants to reinstate you as a son or a daughter. So if you're experiencing shame, with what you've done, what's been done to you, or who you are, I want to invite you to take a step towards Jesus, the one who best embodied the loving father from this story, to allow him to break your walls and to welcome you in and to say, you're enough. You're a daughter or a son of God. Let him wrap his arms around you and cover you with a new robe, a new identity, the one you were always meant for. Sometimes it's helpful when we make a decision to have a public and physical step forward. Being online, one of the ways we can do that 
is by participating in a digital option. If you have made the decision to follow Jesus today, or you want to be embraced by the loving Father, can I encourage you to click that button in the chat that says, I want to come home to Jesus? If you click on that, I want to encourage you to request prayer. And one of our online hosts, or myself, will connect with you. You see, the church is our response to God's love for us. We gather and celebrate this amazing and gracious God. And our desire is that we learn to be compassionate and empathetic just like him. So we need one another as we remove shame and step into the hope and love of Jesus. So if you've made that decision and you want to be embraced by your Heavenly Father, go ahead and click that button now. This morning, I want to conclude where the story does. Remember, the story begins with a father with two sons, the younger who leaves and returns, and the elder who stays. Now, the oldest son responds to this by bringing yet another layer of shame in the story. While the party's going on, he refuses to join the celebration. And the father goes out to plead with him to join in. And yet, he still refuses to go in. Which at that time, in this culture, would have been seen as disobedience towards the father. And as a result, would have been incredibly shameful. Now, I'm not going to break the story down too much more than that. And I, but I highly recommend going and reading the rest of this story. What I want to point out to the conclusion of this story is that the older brother holds his brother's shame against him in an attempt to disqualify him. The story goes on to say, this son of yours, not this brother of mine, but when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You throw a party. Rather than welcome his younger brother back, the older brother, who was a product of his culture, wants to heap more shame on his brother. He even draws his own conclusions. Not once in the parable does Jesus mention the younger brother spending his wealth on prostitutes, but the older brother draws that conclusion. I think the sobering reminder in this story to all of us who already follow Jesus as it would have been to the Pharisees, is that we can knowingly or unknowingly disqualify people from coming home. We can lack empathy by not knowing or experiencing the true character of Jesus or the true character of our Father. We can unknowingly or knowingly create walls that prevent people from entering in because of who they are or what they've done or what they're currently doing. One of the ways we do this is through stigma. We put a mark of disgrace on a group of people with a certain quality or in a certain circumstance. Think about it for a second. Think of all of the prodigal sons or daughters who would have felt rejected rather than welcomed and embraced because they were met with signs of shame. Friends, like you and I, we all know our shame, but have we grown in empathy? The point of this story is to learn the character of the Father, of Jesus, who doesn't allow culture, assumptions, the past, or any shame to keep you away from his deep love. And I would suggest more, 
that the encouragement is not just to learn it, but to emulate it, to, to imitate it. Henry Nouwen wrote that if God is compassionate, and we see that in this story through this father figure, if God is compassionate, then certainly those who love him, who love God, should be compassionate as well. We need to embrace the character of the father and be compassionate to those who desperately need it. And if this is an area that you find yourself really struggling with, the good news in this story is that the father went out to meet the older son as well. So ask him to help you. Ask him to be, help you become more and more like him. To have a soft heart. To be compassionate. To welcome joyfully. To help break down the walls of shame. Jesus concludes this story with this passage. My son, and he's talking to the older one. The father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to. And I just love that. We had to. We had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This morning, I want to encourage you that even when the wall of shame looks daunting, that there is hope and there is good news.